This is a Scream Queen production. Jen Carpenter. Happy Halloween week. This week always makes me a little bit sad because I love it when fall is like just starting to hit, you know, like end of August, all the stores are getting their Halloween stuff in, it's spooky season, but by Halloween week, all the Halloween stuff is gone, the Christmas stuff is out, and everybody's already talking about gift shopping and Thanksgiving meals, and it just makes me sad that Halloween is almost over and it hasn't even started yet. Uh, anyway, off topic. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to our fourth annual Halloween episode where listener stories take center stage. So instead of me telling you my stories, I'm telling you your stories. Big thanks to everyone who sent in their own personal ghost stories for this episode. Some of these have been altered a little bit for length or clarity. Our first submission today comes from Andrea, and it says, My daughter Sierra and I are longtime listeners and really enjoy the podcast. I wanted to share the experiences that my family and I have been having at our home. We live in Bath on Main Street. My husband bought the house in 2006. Over the years, my husband has mentioned how he would see silhouettes out of the corner of his eye move from the kitchen through the dining room and into the stairway hall. It would happen quickly and be gone when he would turn to look. I never experienced anything, and I don't get a creepy vibe, so I didn't worry about it. Then when my daughter was around two years old in 2010, she was a very early talker, and she would say, I saw the man, or the man was here. She didn't act scared and said it so matter-of-fact that I thought maybe my dad, who passed in 2006, would come and visit her. I believe in spirits, and knowing my dad, this would be something he would do. He passed before he was able to be a grandfather, but really loved his great nieces and nephews. He was the uncle that would always prank you. My daughter would talk about this man for a couple of years. She never said a name, just the man. Fast forward six years, when her little brother arrived in 2013, she was moved into another room, and he got that bedroom. When the brother was three or four— He started talking about the man. He would also talk about his toys being knocked over and other little things. My son would often get scared and go crawl into his sister's bed in the middle of the night. When he was around five years old, he stopped talking about the man, but then other things started happening. Objects would randomly fall down the stairs. My son's toys would keep getting messed up. He would build like little scenes with his superheroes. And when he would come home from school, they would be knocked over. These things upset him more than they scared him. During this time, my husband would still see the silhouettes moving through the house. I never really had a clear experience until the last couple of years. I was home one day over quarantine. Of course, where else would I go? (laughs) 
You and me and all of us, girl. And I was doing some cleaning. I don't know if anyone else is like me, but when I put things away, I kind of shove them into a cupboard or closet, close the door real quick, and hope for the best. Ah, yes, the overcrowded closets and cabinets. I am familiar, in fact. I was cleaning off a table and was taking care of a medicine pouch. I balanced it precariously on the edge of the shelf in the cupboard, closed the door, and paused. It stayed in place. Success. About 10 minutes later, I was in the kitchen doing dishes, and I heard what sounded like a cupboard opening and closing. I thought to myself, damn, the pouch fell. I went back to the bathroom where the cupboard was, and I didn't see anything on the floor. I opened the cupboard, and the pouch was still there, balanced on the edge, just where I put it. So the cupboard door just opened and closed by itself. I will admit I got a little excited that I had my first clear experience. I never felt scared or creeped out or anything. I just said, hey, spirit, nice to meet you. That was my only experience until this past summer. We have a cottage up north, and I came home on a Sunday night with the dogs. The rest of the family was coming home the next day. I sadly had to return to work. Around 4 p.m., I was in the kitchen, and I heard someone on the front porch and thought a package that I ordered had been delivered, and I got excited. But when I checked the porch, nothing was there. I looked at my phone to see if there was a notification of a delivery, and I just maybe wasn't seeing the package. Nothing. So I just went back to what I was doing. My house is an old house, built in the early 1900s. Sometimes it's hard to tell if a sound is coming from upstairs or the front porch. It can kind of echo a bit. A couple hours later, I was in bed watching TV when I started to hear what sounded like footsteps above me. Our bedroom is on the first floor and my daughter's room is above us. So when she's home, we often hear her moving around her room quite clearly. I started to hear what sounded like footsteps and bouncing. I muted the TV and listened and I would hear movement for a minute or two and then quiet. Then what sounded like bouncing or jumping and then quiet. This went on for hours. Around hour four, I texted my husband to let him know what was going on, and he told me I should check for animals up there. No, no. I grabbed a broom and went upstairs and turned on the light, and there was nothing. I'm so glad there was nothing, because I don't think your broom would have saved you. It didn't sound like an animal scurrying. It sounded like a person or people moving around. It sounded like my daughter was up there. I just turned on the TV and eventually fell asleep. My dogs were with me, and they did not seem to hear or sense anything, so I wasn't worried about intruders. I finally fell asleep around 10-11, and the noises were still going strong. Even with all of this going on, I was never scared. I had the feeling that it was more mischievous than malevolent. With the incidents and the toys and things being thrown down the stairs, it seemed like what was happening to us was being done by children. A little history on our house. Like I said, it was built in the early 1900s, and it's on Main Street in Bath, Bath, just down the road from Cousins Park. When my husband bought the house, he was told that the pharmacist in Bath lived there during the time of the bombing. The bombing would be the Bath School bombing, the worst school massacre in American history. He was also told that his house was used as a triage area, and the injured from the explosion were brought to the house to be treated and evaluated. This was true for all of the houses around where the school was, because 
There were, number one, so many people flacking to the scene to see what was going on, but there were only so many ambulances. They were trying to get people out to the hospitals in Lansing from Bath, which back then wasn't a quick jaunt. And so lots of injured people were taken to the houses surrounding where the school had been to await their turn to go to the hospital. And so a lot of those houses had bombing victims actually die in the houses waiting for their chance to go to the hospital. So my husband was told that the pharmacist passed away in the house, as well as others who have owned the house. I know the conclusions we drew, but I'll let others draw their own. I mean, haunted children from the the bombing, for sure. Again, we have never felt anything sinister or evil or even uneasy, thankfully. Disclaimer, I am not a historian and have not fact-checked this info. (laughs) I, I appreciate the disclaimer there. That's wild. That Yeah. So um, we've talked about the Bath School Massacre many times. It happened in the 1920s. A madman that was very prominent in town blew up the school with children in it, and it is the worst school massacre in American history. That is believed to be one of the most haunted locations in the state, but when people focus on it, they focus on exactly where the school was, where as like the blast zone was much larger because, I mean, we just talked about it. You know, they took the people to the churches and the pharmacist's house and the neighbor's houses and all of that. So, yeah, wild. As the theme for today's episode is scary stories, I want to remind you all about a fabulous horror novel set in a local town written by a local author, The Eaton by John K. Addis. The story takes place in a long-abandoned underground hotel in Eaton Rapids. And guys... This one scared the shit out of me when I first read it. I'm not even kidding. I mean, the fact that I actually finished it tells you how good it is because I rarely have time to read, let alone finish books these days. You can pick up an autographed copy of The Eaton at Deadtime Stories. It's a book that I've carried since day one because I truly believe in it. If you're not local, you can order it online through bookshop.org. If you're not familiar with the bookshop.org website, get familia. It's a wonderful alternative to the evil A. So again, the website is bookshop.org. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a button that says choose a bookstore. Click on that and then enter your favorite indie bookstore, which obviously is Dead Time Stories in the search bar. It'll pull that right up. You click on support this shop and that'll take you to the Dead Time Stories landing page. From there, any books that you purchase either from our curated list or just by using the search bar, they don't even have to be true crime. They can be anything. If we have been selected as your bookstore, any purchase that you make, we will get a portion of that. So we've got the Eaton listed under the There's Some Horrors in This House category. Great place to purchase it if you're not able to make it into the store to grab a copy in person. Again, that is The Eaton by John K. Addis, who is a longtime supporter of this podcast and all things that go bump in the night. All right, time for another spooky story. And uh, in an odd coincidence, we are going back to Bath. This story comes from Ashley, and it says, I grew up in a haunted house located in Bath, Michigan. Nothing that we know of occurred there, such as murder, but some crazy things happened while I was growing up there. Number one, the basement door would slam periodically during the late night and early morning. When we checked it, it was always locked. 
Number two, if we were in the basement, the sound of multiple people could be heard above us walking around in the kitchen and living room areas. When we would go upstairs, doors were locked and nobody was there. Number three, from the time I was a little girl all the way up through high school, I had to sleep with my door shut. If I didn't, something would run from the living room, down the hallway, and stop right by the side of my bed as if it was looking me right in the face. I never opened my eyes to see what it was. If my door was closed, it wouldn't happen. This usually took place between 1 and 2 in the morning. Holy shit, that's terrifying. Number four, once when I was in ninth grade, my parents went grocery shopping and I stayed home. It was getting late in the evening, so I decided to watch TV in my room. At about 10 p.m., I heard them walking up the front steps onto the porch, open the door, and step into the living room. I walked out of my room to the living room. We lived in a small ranch-style house, and my room and the living room shared a wall. And I said, it's about time you got home. As I stepped into the living room, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. The living room was empty. The front door was locked, and my parents' car was not in the driveway. I locked myself in my room until they really came home about 20 minutes later. Number five. Once, when I was 17, I had finished brushing my teeth in the bathroom and was getting ready for bed. As I turned the light off to walk to my room, I heard the sound of little kids giggling and one said, Shh, she's coming, in a loud whisper. The only ones in the house were my parents who were on the opposite side of the house and our cats, and obviously cats don't talk, that we know of. Needless to say, I did not go to my room and instead slept in the living room that night with the lamp on. To this day, I refuse to be at that house by myself, especially once it starts getting dark. My parents are now divorced and my dad lives there with his two cats, one of which has been seen staring into the dark hallway, her eyes huge and frightened, and will stand on her hind legs like a meerkat and just keep staring. Jesus. We always turn the lights on when that happens. To this day, we have not seen whatever is there. We have only heard things and felt their presence. Wow. So to be clear, these first two stories were not a coordinated attack. I don't think that these listeners even know one another, but I mean, they might. Bath is a small town. I didn't even put them together on purpose. They were just the first two that I pulled up of the stories that people have sent me that I saved before I even read them. I put them together. Um, So, I mean, how crazy is it that both of these stories are about like little ghost children in Bath, which is the site of the worst school massacre in American history where most of the victims were children. Okay, so this next one is not set in Bath, but it does involve a young child seeing someone they call the man, just like in our first story. It's all connected, I'm telling you. So this one is from Julie and it reads, My daughter, who we can call Q, is now 11 years old. When she was about three or four, she began talking a lot about the man. She said that she often saw the man moving about our house or coming into her room at night. I tried not to give it too much attention. I assumed she was just being a normal, imaginative kid. But she started to talk about him a lot more, and she shared details that really unsettled me. We were laying in bed one night, and she mentioned that the man would walk through the walls. She also said that the night before, the man had woken her up in the middle of the night and encouraged her to go for a walk in the neighborhood alone. (gasps) This obviously scared the crap out of me. Of course. I told her that we needed to tell the man to leave her alone and that he wasn't welcome in our house. 
I then asked her if the man was in our room right then. Oh my God, never do that. Never do that. She said, yes, he's right here and held her little hand right up to my face. It sent chills through my whole body. I tried to stay calm as I told her to tell him to leave her alone and don't come back. She yelled, go away, man, leave me alone, and never talked about him again. Still scares the shit out of me to think about it. Ah, yeah, seriously. Are you thoroughly freaked out yet? Let's keep going. This next one is from Cindy. Cindy says, after a divorce, I rented a home in Lansing on Fenton Street. Oh, I'll add it that in the, the last story, I actually know Julie, and um, we went to school in Lansing together, and I know she lives in Lansing now, so I think it's a safe bet that that one happened in Lansing as well. So let's move on. After a divorce, I rented a home in Lansing on Fenton Street. Lived there maybe four months when one night I felt like someone was watching me. I opened my eyes and saw what I thought was my four-year-old daughter. I asked her what she needed, and she didn't answer me. So I told her, tell me what you want or go back to bed. Still no reply. I was getting mad that she wouldn't answer me, so I reached over to the lamp next to the bed and turned it on. There was nobody there. I got up and went and looked in my daughter's room, and she was fast asleep. I didn't sleep very well that night, to say the least. In the morning, I asked her if she got up during the night and came into my room, and she said, no. (laughs) A few months later, both of my kids woke up sick one night. They both came into my room, and I turned the lamp on and was holding my three-year-old son on my lap, while my daughter laid on my bed. My son looked over my shoulder at my bedroom mirror and just started screaming and throwing himself around. I got up and called the hospital, thinking he was having a seizure. The person on the phone at the hospital told me he wasn't having a seizure because he was screaming. I don't... I was so frustrated that I hung up on her. I I would have also been frustrated because seizures can look like a lot of different things, but we're not going to get into that right now. I wanted a reason why he was screaming like he was scared to death. Sure. My sister lived close by, so she came over and she took us to the hospital. At the hospital, the doctor told me that my daughter's fever was higher than my son's, and I actually should have been more worried about her. Once we got home and settled in to get some sleep, I brought the kids into my room. My son, once again, started screaming. I put him down, and he ran out of my room. From that point on, he would not come into my room at all. I'm not sure what he saw, and he wouldn't tell me exactly, but he said he was scared of my room. We moved shortly after that. Thank you. That's all I ask. When your house is haunted, moved, says the girl who lived in a haunted house for five years. (laughs) Before we get into these last couple of episodes, I do have to give a quick shout out. At the top of the episode, I mentioned the novel The Eaton by John K. Addis, which again is one of the scariest books that I've ever read and one that I continue to recommend to visitors of my store. But that author's day job is running Addis Enterprises, an award-winning Michigan-based design and marketing firm, and a proud sponsor of this year's Festival of Oddities. John loves helping fellow authors and small businesses tell their stories, and he has agreed to provide free one-on-one consultations to listeners of SoDead. Just visit aenow.com. That's the letter A, the letter E, and then the word now, N-O-W dot com. Hit that contact button. 
and be sure to tell him I sent you. All right, back to the homegrown horror. This one's from Wendy. It says, I was working the night shift at a motel in Ontario, Canada that's located outside of town in a fairly remote area near an airport. There was a set of double doors to enter, and when the outside door was opened, it sort of created a vacuum between the doors, which caused the inside set of doors to rattle loudly, which meant there was no way to enter without rattling the doors. My son used to come visit me, and he would constantly try to sneak in to startle me, but it was impossible no matter how slowly he opened that door. One night, in the middle of winter, about 3 a.m., I was watching TV behind the desk. I looked up, and a woman was standing at the counter wearing a winter coat. She asked me if there had ever been an accident on the highway out front where a child had been killed. I told her that I had never heard of one in the 10 or more years I had worked there. She explained that she had just been driving by, and in the distance she had seen a small boy who looked about 4 years old, standing in the middle of the highway. He was dressed in pajamas with no coat. She was shocked to see a child at that time of night in the middle of nowhere and slowed down her car. And then the child just disappeared. She pulled into the hotel to ask about any accidents and assumed that she may have just seen a ghost. I assured her that as far as I knew, there had been no accidents, but it could have been before my time. She thanked me and turned to leave. I looked back to my TV and then realized that there was absolutely no way that she could have entered the hotel without me hearing the door rattle. And I also did not hear her leave. I believe that maybe she was the ghost. Possibly she was looking for her own child, or maybe a child that died in the same accident that killed her. I do know that many people have died on that highway over the years, but I have no idea if any died close to the hotel. It definitely left me with a creepy feeling. I, yeah, I I bet it did. As a gal who used to work overnight in a motel when I was very young, um, yeah, my stuff was always more true crimey, but I just imagine being like out in the middle of nowhere at night and yeah, scary, scary, scary. That's the whole point of today though, right? Be scary. All right. So this one, this next one is from Amanda. It says, I saw your post about personal spooky stories and I have one to share. I was 13 and staying the night at a friend's house for the first time. She lived in one of those houses where you go immediately up or downstairs when entering. What are those called? Tri-levels? Danny would know. Once downstairs, you either go to the right to the playroom area, to the left was my friend's bedroom, And then straight ahead was the eerily dark carboat where the hot water heater stood. When I entered the house, I was led downstairs to my friend's bedroom to set down my things. As I made my way down the stairs and looked toward the hot water heater area, I instantly felt like I was being watched and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I didn't think much of it for long and I set my things in my friend's room and went upstairs. Fast forward to later in the evening, and I'm in the living room upstairs with my friend, her brother, and her parents. No one else but us was home, and we were all in the living room watching a movie when suddenly there's a loud bang coming from the kitchen the next room over. Seeing me jump, my mom's friend laughs and nonchalantly says, It's just the ghost. (laughs) Oh 
why would you do that to a new child that's in your, your home for the first time? Nobody else blinked an eye at that comment, so I assumed she was just making a joke as the family did that to me from time to time. Later on that night, it was time for bed, and my friend and I made our way downstairs to her bedroom. Again, I felt that uneasy feeling, and the hairs on my neck started to stand up as I made it to the last step. As soon as I went to make a hard turn left and beeline it straight for the bedroom, in a split second, I looked toward the hot water heater, and I swear against the dark area was an even darker shadow behind the hot water heater. As soon as I made it into the bedroom, I noticed my friend was acting normal, so either she's playing it off like she didn't see or feel that uneasiness, or I was just letting my imagination get the best of me. I chalked it up to the ladder and eventually fell asleep. That's when the weirdest part happened. Before I woke up in the middle of the night, I recalled hearing a faint noise that continued to get louder and louder, as if someone was turning up the dial on a radio. It was chanting like you might hear during a native ritual, as well as the beating of drums. It got louder and louder, and then these two bright white lights flashed, almost like headlights were shining at my closed eyes. The combination of the loud chanting, drums beating, and lights made me instantly shoot awake and sit up. As soon as I opened my eyes, it was dead silent and dark. But seconds before, I knew what I heard and saw. The sound, I can't debunk. The lights, I also can't debunk because my friend's room was in the basement and her windows were not egress windows and therefore light could not manipulate its way to eye level from the outside. At this point, I was absolutely terrified and wide awake and could hear everything around me. I spent the rest of the night in and out of sleep trying to convince myself I didn't hear anything coming from the hot water heater area. The next day at breakfast, I decided to tell everyone about my super crazy dream about how I felt like I was at a ritual with chanting and drums. My friend, her brother, and parents immediately all stop and stare at me. The family goes on taking turns telling me about how their house is haunted by various ghosts and overall are harmless except the guy by the hot water heater. The color must have drained from my face because my friend instantly said, Oh, you saw him then. What the f- what, the, what kind of friend? <laughs> Just, and then went on to confirm that they too see a dark shadow behind the heater and get an uneasy feeling time and again, but have just carried on because nothing has ever come of it. They also informed me about how their house was built near a Native American burial ground, which explains my crazy dream. And a couple of years later, a Native American burial ground was really uncovered right by their house. They had to tape off the area to the public and excavate the location as they found human remains that needed to be relocated. I haven't experienced anything paranormal since, and I'm obsessed with the paranormal. So this is a story I recall very vividly because I'm just blown away by everything that happened. This was in Bay City, Michigan, and happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Amanda actually did include an article from 2000 about this American Indian burial ground being uncovered near her friend's home. So I know the whole, like, we built a neighborhood on top of an ancient burial ground, and now all the houses are haunted. That trope is a tale as old as time, but that doesn't mean that it's not true, right? It's crazy. So Amanda also sent in a true crime story that she has a personal connection to. 
So we're going to end on that one because, I mean, humans are always much, much scarier than ghosts. Uh, She did send an article about this one as well. The article, though, did not use real names, and she used aliases in her story. So we're going to keep the specifics vague. Uh, Even though I really, really wanted to, and I probably will at some point, I didn't do any research on this. I am just giving you the story as it was given to me. And Amanda says... This happened to my brother's best friend in May of 2021. Matt, not his real name, started dating a girl named Allie, not her real name, that he met up in Traverse City. Things were going well, she seemed sweet, came from a good family, and was a nurse at Munson Hospital, which is like the big hospital up there in Traverse City. Matt was working as a manager at a local winery, Late one evening, while Ellie was at work, Matt was alone in his apartment when there was a knock on his door. He wasn't expecting anyone, so he got up and looked out the peephole and saw someone on the other side of the door holding a pizza. He asked, who's there? And the dude with the pizza said, hey, your girlfriend Allie ordered you a pizza off DoorDash. Matt thought this was a little weird, but the guy was holding a pizza and he'd mentioned Allie by name. So, okay, yeah, just a really sweet gesture, right? So Matt opened the door, and when he did, this pizza guy pulled a knife, uh, and he forced Matt back inside the apartment, back to his bedroom. He made Matt lay face down on the bed with his hands behind his back so that he could zip-tie them. He then had Matt sit up, and he force-fed him sleeping pills and vodka. He then forced Matt back down on the bed, slit both of his wrists, and started taunting him, saying things like, Bet you didn't think you'd die like this, huh? Can you even imagine? As Matt started to lose consciousness, he knew that he had to act, so he threw his elbow back and hit the pizza guy square in the face, knocking him backwards. As he started to struggle, he realized that this idiot put the zip ties on him backwards, so he was actually able to easily get his hands free. Now, Matt was a big guy, six foot three, almost 250 pounds. And even though he was known as the type of guy who would never hurt a fly, flies don't normally try to murder you. So he attacked. He got the knife. He sliced the pizza guy in the abdomen, uh, hit him a few times. And once he disabled his attacker sufficiently, he fled the apartment. He was bleeding profusely from his wrists and had a stomach full of sleeping pills and vodka at this point. So he's barely hanging on to consciousness when he made his way down the hallway and started knocking on every door in the building looking for help. He got to the very last door, and just before he lost consciousness, a man opened the door. Not just any man, though. The son of Traverse City's chief of police. So he had a bit of knowledge about dangerous situations. He called 911, and police and EMTs mobilized immediately. There was a trail of blood leading from Matt's open apartment door to the door of the man that called 911, but there was also another trail of blood leading from Matt's door in the other direction. That blood trail led to Matt's attacker, who was bleeding out in the bushes, barely conscious. Both men were rushed to the nearest hospital, which just so happened to be Munson, where Matt's girlfriend, Allie, was working the night shift. She was shocked when she found out that the man in critical condition with stab wounds was her boyfriend. But she was beyond shocked when she found out that she also knew the other man being treated for stab wounds, 
Matt's attacker. He was no pizza guy. He was her ex-boyfriend. She was totally puzzled by his actions because their relationship had ended amicably. There was no overlap between her relationship with him and her relationship with Matt. He wasn't like stalking her or anything. So she had no reason to fear or think that he might do something like this. While police were investigating the scene, they found the ex's disguise, a wig and a pizza box, along with a suicide note that he had written as Matt saying, that Matt had cheated on Allie and couldn't live with the guilt, so he was killing himself. They even found a bra that the pizza guy was planning to plant in Matt's apartment to further sell the cheating story. While doctors were not hopeful that Matt was going to survive due to the amount of blood that he lost, he actually made a full recovery after a few days in the hospital. The pizza guy was treated for his injuries, then taken into custody on charges of attempted murder, unlawful imprisonment, felony firearms, and felonious assault. Matt and Allie are still together and doing well, and the pizza guy is now rotting in a jail cell. Holy fuck, that is wild. That is wild. It's true because I saw the one little news article on it. I haven't looked up anything else because, so I, like... I didn't just not tell you their names. I legitimately don't even know these people's names, but it, it did happen. So in Traverse City, of all places, this one needs to wind up on the ID channel that show your worst nightmare, like perfect fit. And that's a wrap on our fourth annual Halloween episode. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. And thank you so much to Andrea, Ashley, Julie, Cindy, Wendy, and Amanda for sending in wonderful stories, horrible stories, but wonderful stories. And of course, John K. Addis, author of The Eaton and owner of Addis Enterprises for his constant support of So Dead, Dead Time Stories, and A Festival of Oddities. The next episode of So Dead is the season four finale, episode 95. Can you believe it? Can you believe that we've made it this far? Look how far we've come. Since the last time we talked, we hit a pretty significant download milestone. Um, So Dead hit a million downloads, which I know there are podcasts that like the second they get uploaded, they've instantly got a million downloads. But but for a little indie podcast about Michigan-based history, I feel like that's pretty huge. That That's big. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, obviously, wouldn't be here without you guys. Couldn't do this without you guys. And I appreciate you so, 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 so much. Uh, follow me on all of the socials, especially during the off season. There is the Facebook page for So Dead, the Facebook discussion group for So Dead, little bit active on Insta, but not too much. And then TikTok is the Jen Carpenter at this point. Until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. 